Jeremiah chapter 50, I'll bring out New King James Version, as is my custom. God's word declares, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I will punish the king of Babylon and his land, as I punished the king of Assyria. I will bring back Israel to his home, and he shall feed on Carmel and Bashan. His soul shall be satisfied on Mount Ephraim and Gilead. In those days and in that time, says the Lord, the iniquity of Israel shall be sought, but there shall be none. And the sins of Judah, but they shall not be found. For I will pardon those whom I preserve. Go up against the land of Merathaim, against it and against the inhabitants of Pekod. Waste and utterly destroy them, says the Lord, and do according to all that I have commanded you. A sound of battle is in the land and of great destruction, how the hammer of the whole earth has been cut apart and broken, how Babylon has become a desolation among the nations. I have laid a snare for you. You have indeed been trapped, O Babylon, and you were not aware. You have been found and also caught, because you have contended against the Lord. The Lord has opened his armory and has brought out the weapons of his indignation, for this is the work of the Lord God of hosts in the land of the Chaldeans. Come against her from the farthest border. Open her storehouses, cast her up as a heap of ruins, and destroy her utterly. Let nothing of her be left. Slay all her bulls. Let them go down to the slaughter. Woe to them, for their day has come, the time of their punishment. The voice of those who flee and escape from the land of Babylon declares in Zion the vengeance of the Lord our God, the vengeance of his temple. Call together the archers against Babylon, all you who bend the bow, and camp against it all around. Let none of them escape. Repay her according to her work, according to all she has done to her, according to all she has done due to her. For she has been proud against the Lord, against the Holy One of Israel. Therefore her young men shall fall in the streets, and all of her men of war shall be cut off in that day, says the Lord. Behold, I am against you, O most haughty one, says the Lord God of hosts, for your day has come. The time that I will punish you, the most proud shall stumble and fall, and no one will raise him up. I will kindle a fire in his cities, and it will devour all around him. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the children of Israel were oppressed, along with the children of Judah. All who took them captive have held them fast. They have refused to let them go. The Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He will thoroughly plead their case that he may give rest to the land and disquiet the inhabitants of Babylon. A sword is against the Chaldeans, says the Lord, against the inhabitants of Babylon, against her princes and her wise men. A sword is against the soothsayers and they will be fools. A sword is against their mighty men and they will be dismayed. A sword is against their horses, against their chariots, and against all the mixed peoples who are in her midst and they will become like women. A sword is against her treasures and they will be robbed. A drought is against her waters, and they will be dried up, for it is a land of carved images, and they are insane with their idols. Therefore the wild desert beasts shall dwell there with the jackals, and the ostriches shall dwell in it. It shall be inhabited no more forever, nor shall it be dwelt in from generation to generation. As God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and their neighbors, says the Lord, so no one shall reside there, nor son of man dwell in it. Behold, a people shall come from the north, and a great nation and many kings shall be raised up from the ends of the earth. They shall hold the bow and the lance. They are cruel and shall not show mercy. Their voice shall roar like the sea. They shall ride on horses, set in array like a man for the battle against you, O daughter of Babylon. 
The king of Babylon has heard the report about them, and his hands grow feeble. Anguish has taken hold of him, pangs as of a woman in childbirth. Behold, he shall come up like a lion from the floodplain of the Jordan against the dwelling place of the strong, but I will make them suddenly run away from her. And who is a chosen man that I may appoint over her? For who is like me? Who will arraign me? And who is that shepherd who will withstand me? Therefore hear the counsel of the Lord that he has taken against Babylon and his purposes that he has proposed against the land of the Chaldeans. Surely the least of the flock shall draw them out. Surely he will make their dwelling place desolate with them. At the noise of the taking of Babylon, the earth trembles, and the cry is heard among the nations. Well, we come to chapters 50 and 51 of Jeremiah, and we are being engaged with, with um, some very powerful uh, poetry that uh, we miss a lot of it because we're not proficient at Hebrew. Um, they tried to bring it out in every translation, really in every language, and we can get a taste of it here and there, but it is um, some of the best written stuff out there, as I shared two weeks ago about the pastors about the nations as well. Um, this is considered some of the highest Hebrew writing in the Bible, and so in terms of its structure and poetry and, and, uh, and its potency, uh, just, just uh, as a language, um, not necessarily as content, but in the style and the presentation. Um, there have, of course, been those that take issue with the fact that it's not prophetic, but historic. That is, that it was written after the fact. We're going to really counter that really heavily this morning. And uh, in one area particularly, that it could not have been written um, after the fact, because the fact still exists. And so we're going to look at that. Um, but like any prophetic book, that has been the accusation. It's the accusation against Daniel and all the uh, precision that he has about the, the movement of, of uh, the Greeks and the division of the Greek Empire and all of that. It was written after the fact. But yet we find uh, plenty of evidence that that was not the case. Um, and so we, we look at this and we say this was not written after the fall of Babylon. There's no indication that Jeremiah's ministry extended that far. Um, and so this was written in preparation for it. And we're going to see how important that is for Judah and Israel in captivity, uh, why this was all. So we're going to have three solid themes um, that are all interwoven with each other. And they keep getting revisited. This is cyclical. And so we're going to... Uh, and so. We have to handle all, both chapters um, because we want to handle um, each of those themes and they are all dispersed among all the verses. So there's a portion on one, a portion on another, a portion on another, and then it goes back to the first. Um, and so we have a very powerfully organized um, prophetic letter, really, is what it becomes, sent to Babylon to be heard by the Babylonians, surely, but even more so being heard by Israel in captivity. That now that you are there, we've already had one letter sent, that was Jeremiah 29. 
Now that you're there, settle down, build your houses, plant your gardens, marry your kids off, have grandkids, and seek the peace of the city. And so that was there in Jeremiah 29. Uh, now this is a later letter, um, and it's really laying out for us what is God's ultimate interest in Babylon, what's going to happen down the road. Um, and this is also important for us not only historically to look back, but if you have any knowledge of eschatology, what does the nomenclature used for the end times evil is Babylon. Um, that name comes up again for us to examine and consider. And so this passage, these two chapters, um, are really what it's pointing back to. When it talks about Babylon, uh, mystery Babylon, they're really going back to, if you look back at Babylon, you'll get a concept of what we're looking at at the end times. And we're going to be examining that just a little bit, but I just want you to recognize its importance uh, to just even what we're doing. And in terms of our eschatology today, um, on two levels. So we're going to see two different modern um, aspects that are built on these two chapters. Before we get into it too much farther, let's go Lord in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the word before us. And Lord, we do, as always, pray for your Spirit's guidance, that what is spoken is true to your word, um, that it is filled with purpose by your Spirit, that we allow it to penetrate our hearts and minds and, and uh, formulate our uh, concepts of you, of your work, of your people, of the future and the, and that you have for us. And Lord, we... Uh, just pray that it might then be evident in our lives that we believe you, that we know you, and that we are followers of you. And so, Lord, guide us into that by your spirit today, to your glory, in Christ Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what are the three categories that we're going to be visiting? One is really obvious, and that's the first one we're going to do today, and that is the destruction of Babylon. Real simple, you couldn't miss it, no matter what portions you start off from verse 1 all the way through, you couldn't really miss that God is, has it in for Babylon. And we're going to deal with some of the tension of that, and there is some tension there. Um, is God righteous in that? And we're going to try to point, pull out that aspect of it. And so we're going to talk about what God's going to do to Babylon, because he's going to tell us. He's also going to tell us, Who's going to do it? He's going to repeatedly tell us who the instrument is, the new instrument. What's the new instrument he's going to use um, to deal with Babylon, to break her down to pieces? And then he's also going to tell us why. Why is he doing this? And God's not unjust, and so he can describe that, and he's going to describe for us repeatedly why. Why does Babylon have to be judged in this fashion? And he's also going to tell us uh, the, how long this judgment of God is going to endure on Babylon. All of these are somewhat important for us eschatologically too. And so as we look through them, we're going to see some similarities to what we see in Revelation and, and in later portions of Daniel. And so uh, we, we want to pick those out. So that's the first theme, is the destruction of Babylon, the real obvious one. But equally powerful and probably even more important to the original listeners of this letter 
and readers of this letter, there really was one reader and everyone else listened, and then he crumpled it up and threw it in the river. Um, that sounds weird to you and I. How do you save a letter that guy read and then crumpled up and threw in the river? Um, well, it, there was a copy made before he did that. And so to the original listeners, the more important part than Babylon being destroyed, because remember, they have settled down into Babylon because God told them to. And in fact, they take some pretty high positions in Babylon when you start looking at it. Um, and so they have settled in pretty significantly. And so more important than Babylon's destruction uh, is the second category, and that is Israel's redemption. It's more than just Israel returning to the land. It is Israel being saved. God isn't just saying, I'm going to take you back. He is saying two things about Israel. Um, one of them is that their sins are going to be forgiven and gone, not practiced anymore. You might say, when did that ever happen? Well, it hasn't completely happened. And that's why we have to, again, see a, a, the fullest fulfillment of this future still to us. So we're still waiting for this, and this is what we expect. At the end of the seven years, the outpouring of God's wrath on the earth, the time of Jacob's trouble, that when Christ comes to bring his kingdom onto the earth, um, all Israel will be saved. And that's, we're still waiting for this fullest fulfillment. But we do see, to a degree, both in, in Daniel and elsewhere, in Nehemiah and Ezra, that there is a turning to God of that generation, and they're going to follow the Lord. And if that means I have to get rid of these foreign wives, I'm going to get rid of those foreign wives. I'll do it and no matter how radical a call you make on me, a personal sacrifice, you find Israel willing to do it to please God, that whole generation. And so it's their redemption. Yes, it's partially, I'm going to bring you back to the land, but that's not the focus of Jeremiah. The land isn't so much the focus, we're going to bring you back, that is an aspect of it, but the real focus, the power here is I'm going to redeem you, I'm going to, I'm going to save you, I'm going to forgive you all your sins, and you're going to turn from your sins. It's going to be a wonder spiritual movement. And so that's what Israel's hearing. And so they're going to um, be told some important things about how do you deal with, when you live in a country that God is judging, and we're going to talk about that a little bit next week, more so than this week, but I'm going to reference it a couple of times this week because of how Babylon's going to be judged, and uh, we're going to see it lived out in a guy named Daniel. The third category that I'm going to have to deal with both this week and next week because it applies to both areas of both Babylon's destruction and Israel's deliverance is um, God's dominion. That all of this is within the, within the working of God. And you will find as you read through here, not only I'm going to destroy them, and there's a lot of that, I'm going to save them, but there's also remember who I am. And we're going to find who is this king of glory? Who is this Lord over all the earth? Who is this one who will shame the gods of Babylon? and make them dust, and make you ashamed you even ever made them. Um, who is this God that we're dealing with? Don't forget who he is. And he's talking not just to Israelites, don't forget who your God is. He's talking to Babylonians and to Persians. Don't forget who 
God is who I am. And uh, because there's much, uh, in, the con- in the process of telling who's going to be doing the work, um, God also has some messages to throw out there to the next instrument of his. You're going to learn anything from the Babylonians or not? So let's look at the first category, and that is Babylon's destruction. And somehow a gnat survives and lives here in, on my page. So, And uh, why? And I want to really start with the why, because I think that's a more important question than who and what and, and, and things along that line of, of the events. Uh, I think the answer to the question why is of real importance. I want to spend a little time on it, so we're going to do it with it first. And that is, um, throughout this, we have heard God tell Judah, don't fight the Babylonians. They are my instrument of judgment on you. And if you are wise, you will surrender to them. If you are wise, you'll recognize this is the work of God and is futile to fight against it. That once God has raised up an instrument and employed them for his work to oppose that instrument, no matter how badly you think of that instrument, no matter how wicked you think that instrument is, you are in error to try to go against it. And so the Babylonians come in not as a godly nation, not at all, not as a godly army, really. They had some aspects of fairness about them that they weren't going to, they didn't really want to destroy Jerusalem, but Jerusalem kind of forced them to do it, you might say. And so how can God now condemn them for doing the very work that he ordained for them to do? And it just seems like God isn't fair. And so throughout these two chapters, as God condemns and and declares the destruction of Babylon, he's going to answer that question of his fairness. And it refers to God's faithfulness. Is God righteous in doing this to someone he raised up and brought down to do his work against his people? You know, if, if all the Israelites were supposed to accept the Babylonians and Daniel serves them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego serve their Babylonian captors, um, and not just them, others as well. And so, how is God righteous in, in treating them this way? And we're going to look at these here very, very quickly, and we're going to go through these two chapters and look at that. And of course, the, it's easy to pick out some of these places, I'm not going to hit them all necessarily, but I want you to um, see that God is laying forth a righteous declaration. So, let's look at verse 10 of chapter 50 of Jeremiah. Chapter 50 of Jeremiah, verse 10, it says, And Chaldea shall become plunder, all who plunder shall be satisfied, says the Lord. Well, why? Next verse, because. It doesn't just end with one word. Isn't that good? Don't you hate it when your kids say, or your parents say, because. Why? Because. Well, that's not a sentence. That's a dangling something. Not a participle, huh? Conjunction. Thank you. See, they went to Rebecca, so they know all that stuff. Because you were glad. Because you rejoiced. 
Because you've grown fat like a heifer threshing grain and you bellow like bulls. Why is God going to do this to them? He's going to do this not because of what they did, because what they did was necessary. God called them to do it, um, but they gladly did it. And remember, this isn't unique to Babylon. Remember, remember those Edomites were over there going, yeah, look at that. They were glad at the judgment of God on somebody. Boy, that kind of hits home sometimes, doesn't it? Are you ever glad that evil people get what's coming to them? Be careful. Maybe you're even glad that you're the one that gets to sock it to them back. No. God might use you in that capacity, but it is wrong, and God holds it against the entity that rejoices in doing what is very difficult work. God doesn't rejoice in it. He's not happy he has to do this to, the, to Judah and to Jerusalem. He wasn't happy to bring the Assyrians down against Israel, the northern tribes. He wasn't you know, having a party up there uh, to watch the battle and to watch them destroy the enemy. No, there was no gladness in any of it. But the Babylonians started to be glad in it. They were enjoying it. Now, not the leadership that we could tell, there's no evidence that uh, Nebuzaradad was that kind of a person. But the indication from God is, is that over time, maybe not that first generation, but Babylon as an empire started being kind of happy about that. Yeah, we're the ones that took down that big temple. And it, of course, all of these because ofs are ultimately seen in one man, Belshazzar, Belshazzar, sorry. And so the, the son or grandson of Nebuchadnezzar in a drunken feast that he has where God comes down, writes on the wall, um, many, many, tekel, and then that other word, pashar, pasarin, or something like that. And uh, your day, you've been weighed, found wanting, your days are numbered, and you're done. Um, and that night he died. So that's the ultimate personification of all of these because ofs. Because you rejoiced. What was he doing? He was sitting there having a party and celebrating these precious instruments they brought from the temple of Israel. And they were drinking wine out of it and, and debauching them. And, and so God says, that's it. I'm, that's the ultimate offense. Nebuchadnezzar would have never done that. And so this isn't necessarily about certain individuals, but as a nation, they moved away from honoring the God of Israel and recognizing we're here as the instruments to judge you, and we're not supposed to be happy about it um, because God doesn't even delight in the death of the wicked, right? The Bible says God does not take delight in the death of the wicked. Um, there's no death that God is happy about, and neither should we. And so we don't glory in it. And um, I think a great example, eschatologically, I'm going to keep tying this back eschatologically, of course, is the two witnesses. What happens when they are killed uh, during the midst of the seven years? The whole world celebrates their death. The whole world takes holiday 
No work. Everyone's in the streets celebrating. There's party, 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 partying all over the globe because we finally killed off these two guys. And God says, that is going to bring my judgment, that you are glad and rejoicing in, dis- in being an, even an instrument of destruction. And there's still something in sane people and certainly in godly people and moral people that recognizes that. Um, one of the real issues in the video of the of the shooting that happened up in the foothills with the homeless man, um, one of the biggest issues wasn't so much the actual events as the attitude of the people doing the shooting who sat there and said, Ooh, yeah! Ooh, yeah! You pulled a trigger and killed a person. Ooh, yeah! That's a big thing. Any thug can do that. A child could do that. Why are you glorying? Why are you rejoicing in the death of anyone? And that was the offensive, most offensive part of the whole thing, is the spirit and attitude that says, hoo-hoo, uh-huh. And when we see that in soldiers, when we see that in police, when we see that in criminals, we are, we are offended. Imagine how God feels. And when we see someone say, I have to take this life and take it seriously and soberly and, and even somberly and, just, and, and, and even weeping that, why would I have to do that? Why did you make me do that? That's the spirit that should be there. Not celebration, high fives, not any of that garbage. That's rejoicing in even if you carry the sword for a reason to enforce the peace, you have no right to celebrate the use of that force. Because you really don't ever want to have to use the force of the sword, gun, death. The death penalty, you don't celebrate it. And so they were rejoicing and and over the destroying God's heritage, even while they were the instruments God chose to do that job. They shouldn't have rejoiced in it. It goes on in verse 14 and says, uh, again, you're going to shoot arrows at her. We're going to talk about the what they're going to do. For she has sinned against the Lord. At the end of verse 14. Um, Babylon has sinned against God. He has given her extraordinary access to his truth. Nebuchadnezzar had his dreams, had Daniel to interpret them. They got to see pre-incarnate Jesus Christ in the midst of the fiery furnace. They saw God. There's a level of accountability when you get to that. And he says, you have sinned against the Lord. You know who I am. But here it didn't last one generation. And once Nebuchadnezzar dies, you don't find Babylon following in his testimony, even though it's recorded for us right there in the scriptures. That there's only one true and living God, the God of Daniel, God of Israel. And I'm going to submit my kingdom to him, but his followers, the, the 
kings after him did not do that. So they sinned against the Lord. They knew who the Lord was. And thus, God's vengeance is on them against all of their idols and their false gods that they lifted up. And one of the names of one of the idols is Bel, B-E-L, just one L. Um, and God just said, I'm going to destroy Bel. I'm going to destroy these false gods, these images. And in fact, even remember in one of the passages we read already um, that uh, all these false images have made you guys insane. It's insanity. You have Daniel who walked, who, who, you know, showed you the way of God. Interpreted dreams no one else could interpret. You, you saw the Lord in the fiery furnace. You have all this access. Certainly. You should have feared me, but instead... You kept after your idols. In verse 24, again, why? Why is God just in doing this? It says that you were not, you have been found also caught at the end of the verses because you have contended against the Lord. They didn't just forget him. They were actually in contention against him. And we're going to see some of that borne out in some of what Nebuchadnezzar did but even later on, and we see how difficult it becoming, had to become to the point that Daniel was really um, on the outs. Even though he was one of the wise men of the empire, um, it was Belshazzar's mother that had to remind him, hey, there is a guy here, and he knows God. Why don't you call him? Don't be so downcast. Don't be so sad. Call him in here. And Daniel arrives and interprets it all, and and, uh, you know, they, like drunken idiots, they, you know, praise him and everything, and then they die that night. They didn't ignored what he said. Um, but um, but they, he had fallen to such disfavor that the king didn't even know who, that he existed. They had contended against the Lord. They had become contentious against his people and, and, and trying to blot out the memory. I'm convinced that one of the reasons they brought those Articles of the temple in there was to purposely snub their nose at God and really snub their nose at dad or granddad's God. To revert to the historic gods of Babylon. Well, it goes on. In verse 29 of chapter 50, at the, again, the last phrase, why is this going to be done? Uh, the last half says, Repay her according to her work, according to all she has done due to her, for she has been proud against the Lord, against the Holy One of Israel. And of course, we saw that extensively in Nebuchadnezzar, and so we're not surprised to see that right on down the line, that they were proud of themselves. Look what we have done. And they didn't acknowledge that they were simply a vessel used to carry the wrath of God against his people. Nebuzaradan knew that, and he communicated that to Jeremiah, but there is no evidence that that persisted in Babylon. And so there was this growing attitude of arrogance that we saw again in Nebuchadnezzar. He had to be broken of it, but there's no evidence that the rest of the nation was broken of that kind of arrogance, and certainly not his, not his uh, children. And so we move forward, and God's still going to say, I'm going to explain to you why. And so let's uh, jump ahead to chapter 51. 
There's another facet. Verse 13. O you who dwell by many waters, abundant in treasure, your end has come. Why? Because you're getting the measure of your covetousness. You are getting what covetousness pays. We think covetousness gets you lots of stuff and makes you rich, but it doesn't. It just puts you in a state of being at enmity with God. And in fact, when you get in the New Testament, um, it calls it idolatry. Covetousness, which is idolatry, Paul writes. And so um, that's what God thinks of coveting things. You're not satisfied and content with what you have and you want what everyone else has. You want more and 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 more. Um, that covetousness, God says, that's idolatry. And in Corinth, people were dying for that. God was putting them to death for that kind of activity. We are called to exercise church discipline over covetousness when it's seen in our midst. It's on that list. It is specifically mentioned. And so God looked at them and saw their covetousness. He gave them everything, and they wanted more. They were discontent. God gave them everything. Did you read through, remember, reading through some of the Jeremiah? And God says, I'm going to let you take out Egypt. I'm going to let you do this to these guys. I'm going to let you do this to these guys. No one can hold up against you. I'm going to get you everything you want. And Nebuchadnezzar got everything he wanted. And then he got exalted and proud about it. Um, and he wanted more. And the evidence is that they all wanted more. And one of the reasons that, and we're going to see this true of the Persians too a little bit later on. And so God says, that's covetousness. You should have been content with the borders I gave you. And we find that Babylon had some lost battles because they tried to go beyond that, what God said was theirs. And so they wanted more. And it goes on. Go to verse 24 of chapter 51. I'll repay Babylon, all the inhabitants of Chaldea, for all the evil they have done in Zion in your sight, says the Lord. And he also mentions a couple of places about his holy mountain. He mentions about the temple, what they did to the temple, and what I am convinced what they do with the holy articles of the temple. He says, you know, ultimately, you could have done all of that without demolishing the temple and desecrating it. And because of what you did to the temple, not what you did to the people, to the city, to the walls, but to the temple, to Zion, um, and I'm going to judge you. And I'm going to do to you what you did to that. You didn't need to really do that. Um, remember that um, Zedekiah had run. He had run. He wasn't even in Jerusalem. They caught him over by the Jordan near Jericho. And so he wasn't there. And so there was... They, they had sacked the city there, and, but why penetrate and do what they did in the temple? And, and so God says, uh, that, you didn't really have to do that. That wasn't within the realm of what was required. You did more. And that cuts back to the whole idea of rejoicing in it. You're celebrating so much you overdo it. You do more than what you're really called to do. And so God says, I'm going to do to you because of the evil you've done in Zion, the sight of the people. Remember, Jeremiah talks about looking back over his shoulder and seeing what was happening to Jerusalem as, they were, as all the captives were being carried away. Well, if the city's empty, why do you have to do these desecrating things? And so these are the reasons. 
<clears throat> and uh, he personifies it a little later on in chapter 51, where he has Jerusalem talking and describing it as if um, Nebuchadnezzar had, had uh, crushed me. And, and the me and, the, and uh, uh, all through that verse um, 34 and 35 of chapter 51 is all Jerusalem personified talking, the city talking. He's maybe an empty vessel. He swallowed me up like a monster. He's filled his stomach with my delicacies. He's spit me out. Um, let the violence done to me and my flesh be upon Babylon. The inhabitant of Zion will say, and my blood be upon the inhabitants of Chaldea. Jerusalem will say. So the city's talking. This is, you know, they just crushed the city. They wanted to obliterate it. And because that's what they wanted, God said, that's what I'm going to do to you. You are going to be obliterated. Jerusalem I just wanted punished. I didn't want them to be gone because that's my eternal city. You don't have the right to try to wipe it off the face of the earth forever. And so that's exactly what I'm going to do to Babylon. And so we find that this is the why. And they're instructive to us, aren't they? Be careful. Be careful. And when you're dealing with um, even God's justice being exercised that we don't sit there and glory in it. And shame on the telepreachers that I remember when one of the hurricanes went through New Orleans. Oh, they were just celebrating. Oh, God was judging them for homosexuality, for their debauchery and partying and, and, and all of that that goes on down there. And I was like, that's so unnecessary. It's uncalled for. We don't rejoice in God's judgment. We can call for it and pray for it. David did that, but, he's, but it's not going to, and we can praise God for it. Thank you, Lord, for judging evil, but we should be saddened that it's necessary. And certainly not setting up parties to celebrate it and have days off to do that. And we saw a little bit of that when Osama bin Laden was killed. Big partying. No, 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 no. We have no business doing that. We can simply say God is just and, and end it there. So that's the why, and that is a lot. I wanted to spend more time on that than anything else. Let's go through the what. What's going to happen? Well, they're going to be attacked from the north. We know who and what. Who's going to do it? It's named, the Medes, and it's named at this plural kings, which is really important. Daniel's vision brings that out, that it's going to be a two-horned beast, which means two kings at a time, in one empire, and that was, of course, the Medes and the Persians. And so this is Darius coming in, and uh, so it's the Medes are named. Now remember, the Medes are farther north than Babylon. Remember what Jeremiah told Israel about Babylon. These are people that you don't even know their language. And now he's going even farther away and naming them by name, the Medes, whom perhaps some of the Israelites had had some contact with the Medes to the north of Babylon, uh, the Babylonian Empire, um, but he's going to name them. The Medes coming out of the north are going to come. And over and over and over again throughout these, he's going to talk about arrows. Get your bows and arrows ready and bring it on. And there are going to be lances and chariots and things, but he's going to talk predominantly about archery. And that's going to, of course, take us into the riders with the bow and the, air, uh, the being used by one of the first riders of the four horses of the 
church age, not the apocalypse, church age. And so, um, with the bow, well, what is this all about? And it's about quietness and precision, and it can go over all your walls. In other words, and in fact, he'll say that over and over again in these two chapters, build your walls as high as you want. Fortify them as much as you want. I'm going to give their arrows such precision that not a one of them is going to miss. Not one arrow, it says, will return back empty. They're going to fire arrows and every one will hit a target. Because God is directing them. So you can't fortify yourself enough against it and that's what's going to happen. It's going to happen suddenly. It's going to happen quietly. It's going to happen, boom. You're going to know they're out there and suddenly they're going to be in there. And that's what happened overnight. Now, that wasn't the full prophecy. The prophecy wasn't just that you're going to be conquered. That happened. Darius comes in. And that happened um, 529. We know exactly when that happened. 539? 539. 539, I think. 529. I, I shouldn't have. I should have written this, written this down. 529, 539. One of those two. I think it's 539. Um, they come in that night, they sneak in through the waterways, they block it up, and they come in through the waterways into Babylon proper, and they take the city just like that. Overnight, boom, it's taken. But the prophecy isn't just that you're going to be taken, you're going to be demolished. And we go through the history, and we, this is all very carefully recorded, that it took about 61 years between the conquering of Babylon and because the Babylonians kept rebelling and kept causing problems, each successive Mede and Persian king broke it down a little bit more until finally a guy named Xerxes, and you know him, Esther's husband, comes in and just flattens the place and sows it with salt. We are done with this town. We got to get this city off the map and doesn't leave one rock on top of another rock and it is still that way today because God said so. God, and this is why this prophecy, you can't sit there and say, oh, it's too precise because it was written after the fact. It couldn't have been written after the fact because the facts still exist. What God prophesied was that no one would ever, ever dwell there again. Ever. And guess what? No one has ever, ever dwelt there again, including right now. There was a guy that actually wanted to rebuild it in our age. His name was Saddam Hussein. He wanted to rebuild Babylon. He didn't. Lots of other people wanted to rebuild Babylon. They haven't. Why? Because God said so. What you wanted to do to Jerusalem, I'm going to do to you. You are going to be wiped off the face of the earth, never to be rebuilt again. Ever. And it hasn't. And he describes as a place that you're going to see jackals and ostriches, and, and it's going to be empty. And it is empty. This is all described here. And so, is pro prophecy precise? Yes. Does that mean it was written after the fact? No. 
It couldn't have been written after the fact because we know we've had it around for a couple thousand years at least. During the church age, we've had Jeremiah around and it's still precise to this day. Now, why is this important? What, what happens to Babylon? Because in the end times, Babylon is going to become a type of what is going to happen to one of the entities of the end time, the woman, the rise of the beast, false religion, mystery Babylon, is going to be destroyed. It says that she's going to be eaten up, consumed, and that language comes out of these chapters. She is going to be slain, and she's going to have fire, smoke coming out of her. It's going to stretch into eternity, and her demise is permanent from then on. And that's why this language of these two chapters is what John is alluding to when he says when false religion falls, when its final fall comes, this is what it's like. It's Babylon. It's, it's grown out of that. It is mystery Babylon. That is the, the same sins that were there, the same error that was there. The false religion is there. Um, you're worshiping so many gods, you're, you're crazy. You've gone nuts. Kind of reminds me of India. You know, they've got so many gods that they're nuts. How can you possibly please any of them, let alone all of them? And you got a billion gods for four billion people or whatever they got. I don't know what they got now. 1.2 billion or something. And so we find that uh, this is the imagery being used. And so that's who's going to do it. The Medes and the Persians are going to go come down. That's how it's going to be done. That's what's going to happen to them and how long it's going to persist. All of that is prophesied here in Jeremiah. It has not only historic relevance, but it has modern relevance for us because all you would have to do is to prove God's word wrong is go build the city of Babylon. You pick whatever bad guy you want historically all through who was anti-God and with all their wealth and power, all they had to do to discredit the God of this book is rebuild that city. None of them have, none of them could. Just like when God says, build your walls as high as you want, but I'm, point, I'm, using, I, I'm directing the arrows. They'll bend those bows so far that they'll shoot over any wall you build. Build it to heaven. They'll still find their mark. All you do is rebuild Babylon. We've heard a lot about George Soros these days because he was funding the Democrats and all this. We hear a lot about Bill Gates and, and um, who's that other guy, the investment guru that are on Warren Buffett, all these super wealthy guys. And, uh, you know, if you look at what they're investing in, what their idea of philanthropy is, their idea of philanthropy is trying to reduce the population of the earth. Warren Buffett is a, supports Planned Parenthood three times more than our government does. Almost all of his charitable contributions are to abortionists. And we're talking over a billion dollars a year. Okay, these, this is the kind of wickedness that we are dealing with. Bill Gates, same thing. He wants to empty Africa. And uh, he's made it in a speech that by giving these, he called them, um, in his speech, he called them the shots we get for vaccines. 
but that we can reduce the population of the earth through vaccines. Boldly stated right out in a speech, pointing right to Africa. Um, this is what these guys are all about. But if they really wanted to discredit the Bible, go rebuild Babylon. Take all your billions and go rebuild that one city on its spot. It's not being done because God said it. So even to this day, this prophecy is true. We aren't looking for a Babylon to be rebuilt, the city on that site. We're looking for a spiritual thing. And so we have this all before us. And what we find about God, and by the way, um, we're going to talk about Israel next week. Um, how does Israel respond to all this? They're living in Babylon. They were told, seek the peace of the city, and now the city has no peace. Well, God says, when you see all this happening, um, don't incite anything against the Babylonians. You are not the one. You are not my instrument to rebel against the Babylonians. Don't incite them. In fact, he tells them, try to heal them if you can. Go collect some balms and oils and try to heal them, but it won't work. But when you see these guys with their arrows outside the wall, um, run. <laughs> run away. Over and over throughout this thing, it says, just get away from the Babylonians, okay? Don't run back to Jerusalem. The time isn't yet for that. But let, get away from the Babylonians. And where are you going to run to if you're trying to get away from the Babylonians? Well, I think Daniel becomes our perfect example of that. He shows up that night, and this is, I don't think we understand the criticalness of what Daniel does that night that Babylon is captured. It is essential that he do that job, that he is called to that palace, to that banquet hall that night to make that declaration. Why? Because the Persians are coming in, the Medes are coming in, and they're going to say, who warned you about this? He did. One of those Jewish guys. And so when you're coming in and conquering a place and you're slaughtering the king, who else are you going to slaughter? The highest echelon. Who's in the highest echelon of Babylon? A guy named Daniel and probably a few others, members of Judah, are all in the highest echelon. Why wouldn't you slaughter them? Because they exposed Babylon and simply says, you're gonna, God's going to get you. They told the truth, and the Persians, the Medes, hear about it. And of course, you're going to not only save these guys, you're not going to invite them in, you're going to use them. They're the kind of guys you want in your government. And that's why we find Daniel being brought in immediately into Darius's government. Why? Because of what happened that night when he declared, you have lost the kingdom. He doesn't rejoice in it. He simply declares it. And then he says, and um, by tomorrow, I'm going to be on their side. <laughs> and that's essentially what Jerusalem is told to do. Judah is told to do. Run away. Let Babylon be destroyed. And accept the Medes. They're the ones. Insert, they're my instrument now. So you're going to transfer your loyalty from Babylon to the Medes. Don't incite riots. Don't try to rebel. Just accept it. Get out of the way. Get out of the way. Let God judge who he's got to judge by the instrument that he's going to use to judge it. And nowhere in Scripture do I find anywhere the church is called to judge any nation. We are not called to that kind of rebellion and incitement. We just aren't. It is not our nature. 
We get out of the way, let God do it. We don't smile and say, ha, ha, ha. We just say, well, you, probably, you had that coming. Sorry, we tried to warn you. We tried to give you the gospel. Now that had to happen. And we look to the new people and say, can you learn from them? We're going to tell you the truth. And so Daniel's telling the truth to Darius. And he's showing him the truth. That's the lion's den. New king. New exposure to the God of Daniel and of Israel. All of this is exposing God's faithfulness, his dominion. And you'll see throughout these two chapters, I keep referencing back. Um, who is the Lord? Um, who can stand up against me? What shepherd can guard his sheep from me if I'm the enemy? What can you do against me if I'm against you? My vengeance? What can you do about that? I am the Lord of all the earth. And look at his power and his majesty is just wrapped up in this. And so you can't get through half a chapter without realizing, whoa, we are dealing with the one true and living God who works and does stuff and has the power. He's the one that created it all. He's the one that controls it all. He's the one responsible for the storms that come through and, and the lightning and how water evaporates and becomes rain. And, and he's, he set that whole system up. This is the God we're dealing with. Not these puny little gods made by your silversmiths. He says they're ashamed of their work compared to what God's going to do. And so we're seeing these beautiful and incredible passages describing God in the midst of this. And we see extensive passages throughout here describing individual people. He calls a sword. This is my sword. He's talking about the king of the Medes and Persians. I'm going to use this sword. And he eloquently goes through it. And then later on, I'm going to bring out um, this battle axe. He's a sword in, in chapter 50, verses 35 through 38. God says, this is, my, this is the sword I'm going to use against the Chaldeans. In, in chapter 51, it's verses 20 through 23. Um, this is the battle axe that I'm going to use to break this nation in pieces. Um, but God is the wielder of these weapons. He says, these are, this is my arsenal. The Medes are my arsenal. And it's just a reminder when we sing the song, he owns a cattle on a thousand hills, and we think about that, well, he's the owner of everything. He's the owner of every nation. And he can take a battle axe called the Medes and a king called Cyrus and come in and destroy the Babylon where you've planted your garden, built your house, had your kids and your grandkids, and you've been seeking the peace of that for a while. Now he says, I'm done with Babylon. They've got some issues. They're not responsive anymore. Here comes my battle axe, Medes, and you just get comfy with them because they're my new instrument. They're my weapon. They are my arsenal. And when I open my arsenal, look out. Get out of the way. Run for it. This is the power of God. 
And so when we sit here and we trifle over politics and, and international news and what's happening and we worry, it's foolishness. Why? They're just weapons in God's arsenal and he is engaged. He's not dumbfounded. He's not taken by surprise by this. He is actively setting things up for the end times. How could Israel exist today? I have no idea. Except that God says she will exist in the end times. And she does. She is in her birth. Everyone wanted her destroyed. They fought against her. They attacked her. She held them off with, with one gun against a thousand. Um, you know, one broken down tank in the middle of a field. Sits there and just firing everything they got. They couldn't move, they could, but they could fire their gun. And for some reason, those People ran away from them. They couldn't chase them. <laughs> but their enemies ran away. God says, when I pull out a weapon, nothing stops it. And the sword and the battle axe refers to the king. The bows and the arrows refer to the armies. God says, I will use them. I'm the one. So when you see an army and you see it, recognize God is often engaged and he is doing something and maybe it's not what your preference was i'm pretty sure there's a lot of jews who had become comfortable in babylon who didn't really like this going down but it was necessary it was in god's plan and god gave them instructions we're going to see next week hopefully in a warmer clime but trust the lord when he says, seek the peace, seek their peace. When he says, get out of there so I can judge them, get out of there. Let them judge them. And by the way, those passages are really important to me eschatologically because I think what God's going to do is get us out of here before he judges because there's no place on earth to hide when he judges the earth. So I think that principle, I'm going to get you out of there before you, I judge it. Run away. But we're going to be caught away before he judges. That's what we're, our hope and look forward to. All right, next week, we're going to finish up these two chapters by looking at Israel and the God of Israel, what God has planned for her. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. And Lord, we have learned some principles about how you view man and nations and governments and peoples. And Lord, help us to recognize our part in that. And help us, Lord, to recognize your part in that, that we might honor you and trust in you and obey you with respect to our government and the governments of the earth, not just this one, but all of them, knowing that uh, you are involved, and yet men are responsible for what they do and how they do it and the spirit and whether they give you honor or not. So, Lord, we want to be among the number that recognizes your power at work and as you display it in nature as well as in the swords and battle axes that you pick up from time to time among men. Lord, help us to trust you, even if it comes close to home. It makes our lives uncomfortable. Lord, help us to recognize that you are the God who has determined the beginning and the end.
the Alpha and the Omega and praise you as we obey you. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.